1: Yeah, yeah. And although I ain't got no tune, my show ain't gonna fly, I'll find the music there magic
2: Franklin there, covering Lulu. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Rodney Croom joins us to talk about the religious freedom debate. We also speak with Felicity Marlow from Rainbow Families about the IVF report recommendations to Victoria's government. And later, we play two poems read by Omar Sakhar from his book, The Lost Arabs, recorded here at 3CR by spoken words, Die Cousins.
1: You're listening to 3CR Radio.
2: Well, this week, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, announced a policy to appoint a religious discrimination commissioner in Australia. On the line, we have veteran activist Rodney Kroon. Rodney, welcome back to 3CR. Hi,
0: James. Thanks for having me on. It's always great
2: to have you on board. Rodney, do we need a religious discrimination commissioner in Australia? And what would they do?
0: I think actually the terminology the government used was religious freedom commissioner, and that raises the question, as you've suggested, is religious freedom really under threat in Australia, and do we need someone at the Human Rights Commission to be protecting it? I could provide my own answer on that, but a definitive answer was given by the Philip Philibrotic Review into Religious Freedom last year, when it said that, no, in fact, uh, religious discrimination isn't a major issue in Australia, and religious freedom is not under threat. So in Philip Ruddock's own words, uh, I think uh, they answer the question, and that is we probably don't need a religious freedom commissioner at the Human Rights Commission. But if there is to be a commissioner, uh, I've got no doubt that um, at the same time we need someone at the Human Rights Commission to be looking after the uh, legal rights of LGBTI people. At the moment, there's no such commissioner. Uh, There's never been in Australian history. Uh, And if we're going to have someone to protect religious communities from discrimination and to protect their freedoms, then we also need someone to be looking out for the freedoms and the rights of LGBTI people.
2: Why is Scott Morrison going down this path, considering Philip Ruddock didn't recommend it, and he's a pretty conservative chap, Philip?
0: He is. Well, there's a very strong movement in Australia at the moment that arose really uh, in response to the achievement of marriage equality to try and protect so-called religious freedom. Um, This movement is based on a similar movement in the United States that has been successful in passing it in a number of states, uh, including Indiana and uh, Mississippi, uh, laws that protect so-called religious freedom. They're not actually about protecting religious freedom, these laws. They're actually about taking existing rights away from LGBTI people and also others who fall foul of traditional religious precepts. There I'm talking about, say, uh -uh, single mums, or unmarried partners, uh, even in some cases interracial couples. In the US, states have passed laws which, in the the name of religious freedom, take away the legal protections that those people have. And that's what the religious freedom movement in Australia wants as well. It wants to wind back the protections we have, particularly under Australia's quite comprehensive anti-discrimination regime. And uh, advocates for religious freedom, just in the last few days, have made this quite clear. They've said that um, they believe religious schools and other religious institutions should be able to discriminate against LGBTI people. They've said that um, there should be a right to religious freedom entrenched in national law that would ensure that um, there's, for instance, no longer hate speech laws that protect LGBTI people and other people from religious hate speech. They're very clear in their objectives. They want to roll back existing protections. And they're having a lot of influence at the moment, unfortunately, not only on the federal government and Scott Morrison, but also, sadly, on the Labor Party and Anthony Albanese. Uh, And I am quite, quite apprehensive about what might come out of our parliament in the next few weeks.
2: Absolutely, and I'll ask you about Anthony Albanese in a moment, but to what extent do you think the religious right movement has been buoyed by the Prime Minister's own religious affiliations insofar as their push is concerned for this so-called you know, religious freedom that they argue we need in Australia?
0: They've certainly been buoyed by the election result. They believe that they have a, a government now that will be sympathetic to them, that is further to the right even than the previous government before the election, because a lot of the moderates resigned uh, from from the Liberal Party. And we, as you said, have a Prime Minister who is quite open about his um, evangelical Christian faith. Now, of course, being a Christian, uh, being a person of faith, does not necessarily mean that you want to discriminate against other people. But sadly, the church that the Prime Minister is affiliated from does have a pretty poor record when it comes to respecting the equal rights of LGBTI people as does the Prime Minister himself, he put up a number of amendments to marriage equality legislation in 2017, uh, which would have reversed the existing discrimination protections for LGBTI people, particularly in those states with strong anti-discrimination acts. And I'm talking chiefly about Tasmania and the ACT. So he has a record of wanting to roll back um, existing legal protections in the name of religious freedom. And he has a lot of support in in his party for doing that. Now, the majority of Australians, I don't think, actually want this to happen. Uh, Not only have Australians voted for marriage equality in 2017 in the postal survey, but repeated polls show that uh, almost 80% of Australians believe that LGBTI students and teachers in religious schools should not be discriminated against. And they believe that religious organisations should uh, operate by the same laws as everyone else. Unfortunately, though, the government doesn't necessarily agree.
2: To what extent do you think the 2019 federal election is being reinvented as a religious freedom election?
0: Well, that narrative is very strong. I mean, it was straight out of the gate, within minutes of it being clear that the coalition had been returned to government. You had um, leading advocates on the religious right, you know, the Australian Christian lobby, uh, and, and um, religious advocates within the government itself, Saying that uh, it was returned because it has a strong it has a strong agenda in support of so-called religious freedom, and the Labor Party had, uh, in inverted commas, forgotten religious voters. I think that is complete nonsense. There's no evidence at all that uh, the Liberals won because of religious freedom. According to the ABC Vote Compass uh, ahead of the election, where they sort of surveyed the large number of voters on a range of different issues. Only 1% of Australians said that they uh, that their vote would be influenced by the issue of religious freedom, 1%. That's not enough to change an election. If there was a decrease in the Labor vote in Western Sydney or regional Queensland or wherever it might have been, there are a whole range of issues at play and it's uh, a complete concoction to say that that was about religion. But, of course, that narrative is running strongly not only in the government but also in the Labor Party amongst people who, for some reason, seem to think that
2: uh, Labor has forsaken faith-based voters. The Prime Minister has urged temperance from his colleagues around the religious freedom debate, reminding them it's a personal issue. Should he then be allowing a conscience vote on these matters?
0: Well, the Liberals had a conscience vote on marriage equality. They've had a conscience vote on a number of different issues. If only because this issue does affect LGBTI people quite deeply... They should have a conscience vote on this one too. And uh, yes, if it again, if it's an issue of, of of religious faith and and what people believe deep in their hearts, then yes, it should be a conscience vote. The Liberal Party has a long and proud tradition of conscience votes. But the the activists in the Liberal Party, who you know, the religious activists, the conservative activists who uh, want faith, the, the religious freedom to be entrenched in law, will be doing everything they can to stop that because they know that in that case, with the conscience vote, they won't have the numbers.
2: Do you think it's helpful that Tony Abbott's no longer in the parliament for this whole debate, Mark, too, or do you think that he's largely irrelevant because of the rest of the religious right that remains in the parliament for the Liberals and Nats?
0: I, I don't think we should focus too much on personalities, like Tony Abbott or even the Prime Minister, really, I mean, because that takes the attention away from the fact that there is a very uh, committed, strong, well-resourced movement out there Um, that's pushing for these kinds of religious freedom laws uh, or or using religious freedom as a cover for rolling back the rights of other people. Like I said, it's it's a movement that arose in the United States as a backlash to marriage equality. It's come here to Australia, again, as a backlash to marriage equality, and it involves people uh, right across the nation uh, who are very committed to trying to um, put LGBTI and other people back in their box uh, it's, like I said, very well-resourced. It's very well-organised. They know exactly what they want. They want a, a federal legislation that will give them a stepping stone to the High Court in order to uh, invalidate and overrule progressive state discrimination laws. They're very clear about that. They know exactly what they want. They're pushing for it very hard. We should be focusing on that movement um, and trying to diffuse it and alerting our fellow Australians to the dangers of it rather than focusing on particular individuals who really in, in the long term... um. Uh, may push that forward, but aren't necessarily the ones who are driving it.
2: What strategies do you think we can expect from LGBTIQ organisations in response to this? And is there much consensus among stakeholders about how to manage this um, culture war, if you like, on religious freedom?
0: Yeah. I I think we need to look... I I talked before about the United States and how it is where this movement came from. Um, We should also look to the United States for answers uh, and solutions. Initially, uh, when this movement first arose and you had people like Mike Pence, who's now the vice president of the U.S. but was then the governor of Indiana, you had people like them sort of talking about religious freedom laws and putting forward these proposals. And there was initially some confusion and equivocation because religious freedom sounds like something that people should support. And we should. People shouldn't be discriminated against because of their religion. Of course, that's obvious. There was equivocation because people didn't quite realise that that term was being used as a euphemism, a euphemism for taking rights away from LGBTI and other people. And it took people in the US some time to get themselves together. But when they did, they formed a very cohesive and united and unequivocal movement uh, aimed at uh, stopping these laws going through. There was a Religious Freedom Act put in place in Indiana uh, under Governor Pence, but other attempts to do that in other states were stopped when people realised what was actually going on. And I hope we can learn from that and create a movement here against this kind of um, euphemistic religious freedom movement, create a movement against that that alerts Australians to what's really going on, to the dangers of this, and also has a positive aspect to it. And that positive aspect is moving towards a position in Australia where our anti-discrimination laws no longer have these kinds of exemptions that allow discrimination against LGBTI people. To move the nation to a position like prevails in Tasmania, for instance, where religious organisations, be they schools or hospitals or charities, aren't able to discriminate against LGBTI staff or clients or patients or students, they are governed by the same laws as everyone else. I believe we can do that in Australia. I could believe that we can move to a position where uh, all organisations are governed by the same rules as everyone else, uh, including religious organisations. And I think we can use this as a springboard to that. But we need to be out there, we need to be united, and we ha- need to have a very strong message, and that is religious freedom should not be used as a euphemism for discrimination.
2: You mentioned Federal Labor before, and of course, it was leaked that during the Shadow Cabinet meeting, Anthony Albanese said he intends to, to gut LGBTIQ policy. He later claimed the word was cut. What policies can we expect to be cut or trimmed or gutted?
0: I have been quite alarmed by some of the messages coming out of Federal Labor. Um, not only did Anthony Albanese say that he was either going to gut or cut LGBTI policies, uh who knows what that might be? I mean, I think Labor had a fairly good policy going into the election. It was certainly no more uh, fulsome than any other party. They should keep their policies. But not only has Anthony Albanese said that, we had Stephen Jones, a prominent member of caucus, on television recently uh, saying that supporters, you know, centre-left supporters of multiculturalism have to expect a certain level of homophobia, coming out of, of ethnic communities, which I think was deeply patronising to those communities uh, and very unfair to LGBTI people within those communities. So, And, of course, as you've mentioned, Chris Bowen, saying how it was a religious election and Labor needs to reconnect to its voters, as Christine Keneally, to religious voters, as Christine Keneally has also said. So I am alarmed by these messages, and what I want to see from, Labor, from the Labor Party, and Anthony Albanese in particular, is a message saying we will not support any law that uh, weakens or diminishes existing anti-discrimination protections for LGBTI and other people at either a federal or a state level. It's a simple message. I don't see why Labor can't give that message right now. I keep hearing from Labor members they need to see the government's legislation, which hasn't been released yet. They don't need to see that legislation. They just need to make a commitment to Australia's anti-discrimination laws, laws which, for the most part, the Labor Party has passed. The Labor Party initiatives those laws. Why can't it stand up for those laws now?
2: Do you think Federal Labor's been irrationally spooked by the election result? I mean, as you said before, you know, 1% of of voters nominated religious freedom as an issue, and we're dealing with people here, you know, these Labor MPs who are good with numbers, presumably. It doesn't seem that this policy position to the right, this lurch to the right, has been influenced by anything rational. Um, It seems like they're spooked. What's your thought on that?
0: Oh, spot on, James. It's very irrational. Yes, of course, like we say, there's 1% of voters out there for whom religious freedom is a top-level issue uh, who say that will influence their vote. Those are people who are fairly unlikely to vote for the Labor Party anyway. You know, they are going to vote either for the Liberals or for a party further to the right. Uh, The people that Labor thinks it needs to reach out to are not going to vote for it. They're not inclined to be, you know, socially progressive voters. So that doesn't make any sense to me. It really feels like two thousand and four all over again, all over again, where John Howard moved to amend the Marriage Act to ban same-sex marriages, and when he announced that, within minutes, the Labor Party was out there saying, "Oh yes, we'll support that. We want to ban same-sex marriages too." And the underlying electoral calculus there was very similar to the one now. Uh, Labor felt that it needed to cancel out that issue of same-sex marriage as a negative for it um, by supporting John Howard in order to keep and win seats in Western Sydney and regional Queensland Uh, in exactly the same way that now it feels that this issue of religious freedom and LGBTI equality is a a negative for it in precisely the same places. So Labor ran out and supported John Howard's same-sex marriage ban. There was an election straight after. And did it win? No, it didn't. Um, That issue made no difference to the electoral outcome. Uh, Labor did not lose votes, or did not gain votes, I should say, from supporting John Howard on that. The situation is very similar here. It's not going to gain votes or keep seats by supporting religious freedom laws that undermine LGBTI legal rights. It is a very irrational calculation that Labor is making now, as it made then.
2: And surprising because of course Anthony Albanese hails from the Socialist Left faction of the Labour Party. And of course the contrast is Dan Andrews in Victoria, who's also from the Socialist Left. And look at, you know, his policies and his government's policies. Can we expect much dissent within Labour ranks, especially within socialist left ranks of the party on this issue as the policy comes out more?
0: I think the One big difference between now and 2004 is that there is a much stronger LGBTI voice within Labor than there was. There's Rainbow Labor, of course. Um, There's more openly LGBTI members of the Labor caucus than there were in 2004. And I know that those people are currently organising within the party. They're trying to, to put the party on the right track and that they will be speaking out if... Labor goes down the wrong track. So I'm hopeful that people in the Labour Party who who don't want to repeat of the of the long, protracted and difficult marriage equality debate that Labour helped give us that they will do their best to make sure this doesn't turn into that.
2: Rodney Creum, thanks for your time this afternoon. It's always wonderful to talk to you on 3CR. Thanks, James. Rodney Creome there talking about the religious freedom debate here in Australia. It's twenty-five past four, you are on In Your Face on Three C R, and here's Diana Ross. there. Imagine 427. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, this week, a report making recommendations to the Victorian government about IVF was released. On the line, we have Felicity Marlow from Rainbow Families Victoria. Felicity, welcome back to 3CR.
3: Thanks, James. Felicity,
2: what are the key recommendations in the report?
3: Well, I guess the one thing I did want to start with is that we're very grateful to the You know, many LGBTIQ people and families who contributed to the inquiry. It started about a year and a bit ago, and we had several rounds of surveys and roundtables that we invited people to participate in, and it's really helped shape the 80 recommendations and clearly. The reviewers have been very clear in saying that members of the LGBTIQ communities were not necessarily getting the the correct service in terms of assisted reproductive treatment in Victoria, and so we really feel like throughout the final report they've um, really listened and been really responsive to our needs. And I guess the report's pretty far-ranging. It's going from things to do with counselling, things to do with cost, things to do with inclusive practice changing arrangements around altruistic surrogacy all the way to even talking about establishing a public sperm and egg bank. So it's pretty comprehensive and there definitely are some recommendations that we think were a great win for us.
2: So which recommendations are the highlight for you? I mean it's obviously been an exhausting but very thorough as you say consultative process and it sounds like you know the reports really delivered.
3: Yeah look some of the more Specific ones that will have a fantastic impact is recommendation 10, which talks about the limit changing the way in which donated gametes are made available to people. So at the moment, it is that if, for example, there's a sperm donor recruited by a clinic, they can only donate to 10 women, which was quite discriminatory for relationships that had two women in them because it meant sometimes people had to sort of reserve sperm for the future for second or subsequent children. So instead they've changed the women to families. So they're actively acknowledging and in the report talking about the fact that our families are families and they're looking at us as a sort of a unit. That was similar to the issue where people were having to donate to each other within a relationship at cost and that that will also be reduced. I think Another thing that's been something we've argued for almost since 2002, which is a long time ago now, has been the ability for surrogates to have some form of costs covered if they choose to work and be a surrogate. We think it's an incredibly important job and we don't think that the current limits on the minute amount of reimbursement that they are allowed is enough and doesn't go into the fact that women are losing earnings potentially out of pocket for travel to childcare. And there might be medical issues that are not covered currently by the regulation. So we're really pleased that Recommendation 14 and a whole lot of others within the body of the report acknowledge that there should be more costs made available to surrogates and that's going to be a really great way to acknowledge the work that they do as well. I think the other things that we think are really interesting for the future is what the role of the public egg and sperm bank will be. One of the things people have always struggled with, um, or some people have always struggled with, is the incredible medicalised model of creating your family through accessing assisted reproductive treatment. And it is not the only way, but it's a significant way in which you know a sole parent or queer couples do start their family because you need the technology to assist you, not because necessarily you're infertile. You might have the relevant pieces from a range of people, so you don't need a bit of help putting them together. And so we do tend to use assisted reproductive treatment. But a public egg and sperm bank could potentially mean that if you find someone to be a donor or you wish to be an egg donor, you're able to use the public sperm bank. They also have talked a little bit about a process for matching people together so there's really interesting things that they've considered and we, we really look forward to having further conversations about how this will be implemented and exactly what benefit it will have for the LGBTIQ communities.
2: So it sounds like one of the philosophies behind these recommendations is to make life easier for people because IVF is obviously a pretty stressful thing for, for many people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And look, one of the critiques that we had and we weren't the only people that had it is that many clinics now, and not all, but many you know, they're they're operating in a market system, so they are looking for customers. So the way in which they promote their services may sometimes give people a false sense of security about the, the how quickly they may end up with a baby, when in reality it's, it can be much more complicated. And, you know, one of the critiques was making sure people are educated earlier about the range of fertility issues they might have or need to explore, but also yeah, a bit of a reminder to clinics that they can't play people's emotions that way and that they really need to be much more upfront and honest about the um, potential for people to have a baby um, and just be a bit better about how they promote themselves, the inclusive language that they use. We had definitely within Rainbow Families a lot of our families report that they sometimes felt they couldn't make a complaint if the language is not inclusive or if they were asked intrusive questions about their relationships or family forms because they felt that they were stuck in a system and they wanted a baby at the end of it. They'd paid a lot of money. They perhaps had paid, you know, financially had invested in this process. So when they did have con- complaints about maybe a service being very heteronormative or a service not acknowledging someone's pronouns or a service not giving someone the correct advice when based on their intersex variation that people felt a bit stuck they weren't sure who they could go to complain they weren't sure if another clinic would take them on so they those messages from us and our community were heard loud and clear and I think some of the recommendations are really trying to go to the heart of that as well.
2: What does the report to the Victorian government recommend about IVF costs?
3: Yeah look IVF costs is one of the biggest problems it's so expensive and I must say even though you know this is advocacy I've done for a long time my children were born in the you know 2006 2008 before the law changed and you know we were required to have a medical infertility to access it in Victoria at those times so it was a very different kettle of fish to what it is now and you know, I was really horrified by the stories from some people about you know they'd go to their clinic appointment they might meet the nurse and then they'd be shuffled straight off to see the finance director or the financial counselor about how could how they could access their superannuation and the costs have really spiraled out of control and one of the things that commissioners definitely uh, considered in the recommendations and the final report is that you know there's a whole lot of add-on services that are sometimes promoted to clients and anyone who's tried to get pregnant and been involved in any form of assisted reproductive treatment, you know, he's very vulnerable emotionally and you do clutch, tend to clutch at straws and it can be very difficult to know what's necessary and what's an ancillary or additional thing that perhaps is complementary to the service you need. So, yeah, they've really tried to uh, make sure that service users or the services are people-centred, that they put the people at... People and patients at the centre of that, and they they think more clearly about how they promote their services and how um, you know how realistic they are about the costs for people. Yeah, but it'll, we'll we'll have to see if this makes a big difference to to the cost for people. It'd be hard to see that the costs start to get wound back, but we are definitely concerned that they are getting a bit out of control. So I guess that's a bit of a wait and see, but it is incredibly expensive, unfortunately.
2: How much of the report will require legal, legislative changes and what aspects of the report can proceed just with policy changes rather than legislative change without a bill going to Parliament?
3: I know. Do you know what, James? That is the question on everybody's list. (laughs) I've already been texting a few advisors going this is lovely (laughs) but you know is it retrospective Are people who are already in the service now going to see some of these benefits so we this is only released on Wednesday we've put a few questions through um it is clear in the final report they have a section on implementation and they they you know obviously say that some of these reforms will be implemented over a number of years um it is Absolutely. The fact that the Assisted Reproductive Treatment Act 2008 will need to be amended. So that is a legislative amendment, which will, could be quite easy. I mean, this it'll be down to the politics of it on the day, really. This has been a very broad consultation with regulators, with the industry, with the community. You know, there's no, there could be no fault about the, the work that's gone into it. So really, it'll just be a matter of what specific legislative amendments are required. Some of them will require spending. And we already know that some announcements have been made around introducing public IVF clinics and fertility services. Those were things were announced by the government previously. So, you know, hopefully those things have been budgeted for. It just now requires regulation to get them started. So, unfortunately, we may not know, not everything's going to happen at once, but we'll definitely be updating our community and very happy to come back on your show and let people know you know, what are the dates and sort of the timeline for this, these changes being implemented.
2: Has the upper house crossbench been making any positive noises since this review came out a few days ago? Because, I mean, you only need three votes in the upper house, don't you, for any legal changes to, to become law?
3: Yeah, look, that's, that's right. And I think probably similar to us, it's still difficult to work out exactly what will be legislative and what will be regulatory. And I guess that'll we'll, we'll see or that turn up that'll all sort of become a bit clearer over the next couple of weeks or so yes yeah, so I couldn't really say but yeah we'd be pretty hopeful we've had these arguments before our families exist these changes are really tinkering around the edges and making the services more equitable and accessible so there shouldn't hopefully be any problem with that.
2: Felicity Mallow, good to talk stay in touch we'll talk again the coming weeks as the detail emerges further thank you so much for your time this I much appreciate. Thanks James. Felicity Marlowe there from Rainbow Families Victoria. If you are on In Your Face on 3CR, he's Jamira <laughs> Jamiroquai there. Well, Omar Sikar is a Sydney poet and the author of the book, The Lost Arabs, a book dedicated to performer Candy Royale. Omar visited 3CR recently and spoke with Die Cousins from our wonderful poetry show, Spoken Word. And here is a poem from that session.
4: Fridays in the park, or how to make a boy holy. And I can't help but notice his hips first. Bumbag slung low. As the train doors open at Roxburgh Park. And I take in the trackies, his shadowed jaw. The slabs of concrete arcing over him. And as Arab boys are timeless or else stuck in time. I breathe easier in their paws. Their familiar, inescapable heat. And later I spot him in the supermarket and know he knows. I'm watching the way a shepherd tends his flock. Or the way the ocean shivers when the moon slides onto its back And there is no significant body of water in the suburbs Nothing to drown in, yet we drown anyway And I take him in the long grass of the park I taste him in the weeds, knees wet with mud The night buzzing with the deaths of mosquitoes The wild silence after Mouths heavy with musk is complete, and even the birds are mute with love in their nests. There is no song except our huffed breaths, the shuffle of grass bending beneath us, tickling skin, the whole world an animal gone quiet. I asked my auntie about the supernatural hush I felt, and she said, The animals stand still in holy awe, They know the day of judgment will fall on a Friday. And this is why neither of us made a sound. Why his fingers bruised my lips to crush the gasping as one of us disappeared into the other. Why the park bristled with jungle knowing, the kind with teeth. Why it felt like the end of the world and the beginning. Oh, the beginning of another.
2: Omar Sakar there, reading from his book, The Lost Arabs. And uh, this poem is one that was written during the postal vote survey and campaign.
4: It's called Blues. Listen. Countless days I've looked at heaven and imagined the cupped hand of it closed. I have made braille of the stars and divined a message there for the reviled. I whispered, no. Not for you. I have seen the moon as scalpel, as wet white blade, as glaring, as waiting hole to be plunged into, as drop purling on the tip, as well of wonder, as coin to pay for my eventual passage into after. I have made it my enemy over and over. I don't know how often I held blue heaven, made of it a furnace. Such hate I've sketched all on my own Into the willing curve of world And still, every night, the loving dark sweeps in And still, every morning delights again Or weeps in woolen bunches giving life to life This should not surprise you Everywhere the earth wallows beneath the weight of all that men imagine of it all that we graffiti the bright mirror with, and everywhere the wind laughs at how easy it is to wipe our cruelties away. Now, I just want you to know my loves. I opened my mouth and swallowed the sky, not because a man scrawled rejection on it as men have done since forever began, but because it was beautiful, and I wanted to taste every flavor of blue, every cloud
2: from the Lost Arabs, Omar Saka there with Blues. And that was recorded with an interview on 3CR's spoken word program with Die Cousins. And if you want to hear the whole interview and some more poetry from Omar, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash spoken word. Click last episode and you can hear the whole half hour episode with Omar. And uh, if you like poetry and want to hear more of spoken word, please do so. It's a wonderful program. They go to air every Thursday morning here on 3CR at 9am and here is Nine Inch Nails, The Hand That Feeds.